It's time for the big chase scene, so our hero jumps onto a broom and flies off into the sky. Or later in the story, the sidekick might turn his enemy into a toad. Then things get even scarier when another character talks with a ghost or hears a prediction about the future. What is a Christian fan to think about fantasy stories like this one that include magic or magical creatures, or especially around this time of year, creepy and evil-looking creatures? How does scripture actually warn us about the occult and why? Greetings! You have re-entered the domain of Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven. And I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven, also of late the co-author of the nonfiction book with Ted Turneau and Jared Moore, the pop culture parent, helping kids engage their world for Christ. And I'm Zachary Russell, but there are some who call me Tim. This is episode 37, Should Christians Enjoy Fantasy with Fictional Magic? I have been looking forward to this episode for quite a while, but we wanted to hold off on the magic topic specifically until this time of year. We are loosely calling this series on the podcast Spectober. Ha ha ha. The rest of this month, uh, we might be exploring some bigger and maybe some slightly scarier topics like paranormal creatures and things. Uh, That's our last episode, episode 36, in which we interviewed Mike Duran. Uh, Next, we will maybe even explore whether boycotts are helpful for Christians. What about Halloween? Should you celebrate? How should you not or should you celebrate Halloween? And today, of course, we'll explore that scary topic, that important topic of witchcraft and the occult with particular attention to Deuteronomy 18 in the Bible. And next, I'm really hoping we also get to talk about vampires like Bram Stoker's Dracula. This episode is actually part one of the fictional magic series on fantastical truth. Uh, Next, we will hopefully finish this episode by discussing application. So today we're mainly going to talk about the biblical challenges of the topic. And then next episode, we'll get into more of the applications in our lives. But based on your feedback, you probably can guess that we will again return to this topic. Again, it's a very important topic, very necessary for earnest Christians who want to obey Jesus and love Jesus more than sin to explore. Yeah, so listener, this is we want this to be very interactive, so make sure to send us your feedback. Uh, email us, podcast at lorehaven.com. Leave us a message on social media. We want to know where you land on these topics, because this is a conversation. So chime in, and, and especially now that it's, you know, Halloween is coming up, what do you guys do about Halloween, especially during a pandemic? I know that's a huge discussion uh, between Naomi and a lot of her mom friends of like, how do we manage this? And, you know, what do you even think about these holidays. Stephen, for us, my oldest daughter is, she loves thinking all year about her costume. And she's, she's very creative in the um, thinking how to create something interesting. This year, she's going in as, as an 80s kid. So she's already plotted out, you know, the, the leg warmers and the, uh, <laughs> the hair bands and everything else. And we're going to make a trip to Goodwill pretty soon to try to find some great 80s stuff and nothing spooky about it. She just loves the creative challenge of costuming. It is so funny to think that her 1980s is basically my 1960s. <laughs> uncanny. Oh, Simply uncanny. Yeah. Uh, what do you know? Time progresses from uh, era to era, and you can't go backward in time, <laughs> at least so far <laughs> as we know. 
Yes, definitely send in your feedback about this one with particular attention to the experience you have with occult ideas or maybe even practices. I mean, there are many Christians. We were just talking with Mike last uh, episode about his experience in California getting involved with occult stuff and the need for Christ to step in and drag him out of there. It is dangerous stuff. And that's exactly why we want to make sure to define it biblically and understand why God warns against it, what that means and what it doesn't mean. But first, this episode is sponsored by a fantasy for middle grade readers. Monster Ivy Publishing says that this story is, quote, for fans of Doctor Who and the Darkly Whimsical, end quote. Speaking of time travel, sure, I'm past the middle grade, but hey, they say it's Doctor Who and Darkly Whimsical, so I'm there. Here's the title of this creative work, Legend of the Storm Sneezer. This comes from author Christiana Ciferlia. Here's what lies within. Quote, 13-year-old Rose Schuyler sneezed a magical storm cloud at birth, and it's followed her around ever since. But when storming causes too many disasters, Rose is taken to an asylum for unstable magic in a haunted forest whose trees have turned to stone. Guided by time-traveling letters, Rose teams up with her future selves and her maybe imaginary best friend to save her storm cloud and solve the mystery of the specters in the stone trees. But will they find what killed the ghosts before what killed the ghosts finds them? End quote. You can find all of the links and that great cover for this book in the show notes. Also, be sure to explore more of Christiana's world at christianasquill.com. All right, so we are going to go through a quick concession stand. Maybe not quick, because there's a lot of things to cover. This is a, obviously a really hot topic. And if you've been around the Christian fantasy world, you know what a, what a thorny issue this is. So we're going to try to cover some ground here about what we're going to cover. Let's, first, let's talk about expectations, Stephen. So uh, what, what should we expect about this topic? We'll definitely expect us to try to hew as close as possible to some specific definitions for our terms. We use the term fictional magic to mean made-up magic that doesn't work in reality. That bears repeating. Fictional magic means stuff that is made up. It does not work in reality. God is still the absolute sovereign ruler of this world, and some things he has just blocked off. I remember when I was a kid, I got like a catalog. I promised to give you the secrets to invisibility. Like Unless you develop that scientifically, no, I don't think that works. You're not going to be able to turn invisible using some incantation. By contrast, we use occult magic to describe suspicious practices that are forbidden to us for reasons that God has made very plain. Also, just in case, for all you writers out there, this isn't just a, a mechanics of writing topic, like talking about how do we develop our magic systems or the style. This is more fan-centric. It's about the weather and why of this fictional magic versus occult magic and not necessarily the what or the how that magic appears in fantasy. Okay, so let's bring up the big L word, Stephen, and that would be legalism. That is a word I, I hear all the time in these discussions. So are, are we pro-legalism or are we anti-legalism? Uh, definitely, we are opposed to legalism. We don't go for that sort of thing. But we're not going to dismiss the challenge of occult magic or the confusion with fictional magic as if only the nitpicky uh, doctrine cop Christians care about this topic. Do try to approach this topic while putting aside 
uh, that cranky lady at your church who caught you reading the comic book one time, if indeed that's in your backstory. This is an important challenge. That lady was wrong if you ever confronted her or she confronted you, but that doesn't overthrow the need to sort through this from a biblical perspective. This is about holiness. It's about obeying Jesus. If someone, in theory, could show me that reading a fantasy novel or a sci-fi novel with magic or some element in it, if someone could show me from Scripture that that was a sin, then literally, for Christ's sake, I must get rid of that in order to become more like Jesus, if that were the case. After all, Jesus himself was even harsher by saying that if your arm offends you, you may need to cut it off. He was speaking hyperbolically, but it's still a very important point, and the intent is to shock us about the seriousness of evil that corrupts our very souls. Christians have many experiences, like we mentioned earlier. Some of us know more about the threat from occult evil personally. Others come from a different vantage. They may never have been tempted by what we used to call in the 80s and 90s the New Age Movement, TM, and they knew a little bit more about some of the Christian responses to perceived evil that themselves became a sort of magic practice. Put away this book, put away this specific type of cassette or music, and therefore you've purged the evil from your life and made a safe space with a, kind of a magic prayer hedge around it. Some of that can get uh, a little bit magical, and indeed it can get a little bit legalistic. And some of us have experience with that, but we don't want to overreact and pretend that that's the only threat that we're dealing with in this world. One Christian may say to the other Christian, well, that's not a problem, when for the other Christian it really is. So this really, really calls for sensitivity and even awareness of the fact that sin, past and present, can plague a person who wants to love Jesus more than the sin. And some people carry around some trauma left over from previous sin. We want to be very sensitive to that. Yeah, I think the word of the day is charity, believing the best and just being generous in what we expect of others and, and how we treat others on different sides of this. And it really brings to mind the importance of having scripture to ground our experiences or different traditions we've had about this because we we all have the same Bible, so we have to go back to that, right? Exactly. That's my third little disclaimer here uh, in the concession stand. We still need to view any person's experience or anecdotes or secondhand accounts of what happened when somebody did this with the game board at the sleepover. We need to view all of those uh, traditions and experiences through the light of Scripture. It is Scripture, not our own experience, that should interpret all other stories. And that includes things that we have gone through ourselves in our real life, and that also includes the fictional stories that we enjoy. But one key idea that we will assume going forward, sin comes from the heart, not from physical things. That also bears repeating. Scripture is very clear that the impulse, the temptation to sin comes from the human heart. It can be drawn out or egged on by things, maybe even demons if we want to go there, but it's not something that you catch like a disease, like COVID-19 from someone else who spread it to you. You are born in this condition that Scripture calls being dead in sins. You have an impulse to sin unless you have been changed from the inside out by Jesus through the gospel. One of our key texts uh, will be Mark 7. Uh, Jesus challenges the notion that if you eat certain foods, then you are taking sin into yourself. He says that's ridiculous. Sin actually comes out from yourself. The idea that sin comes from things like food or books, it can itself be a very pagan idea. It can itself be an example of thinking like a practitioner of the occult. 
By contrast, Jesus and the apostles teach us about redeeming gifts, redeeming good things that God has given us that human sin would otherwise corrupt. But they also teach, especially Paul says this in his letters, about being sensitive to those who are still tempted. They have memories of idolatry in their hearts. And if you're eating a fine steak in front of them that just happened to come from the uh, evil Greek uh, temple meat market, then they'll look at you and go, wait a minute, I remember when I used to have steak like that and it was all about the idols for me. Maybe idolatry is okay after all. Like You don't want to cause that kind of situation if, if you can help it. And we'll deal more about those application scenarios in this uh, next portion of the podcast in our next episode. First, we need to do some deep magic, if you'll excuse the expression, about the reason why the Bible warns against occult magic and how is that different from other things that fiction may label as magic. So, Stephen, the elephant I see in the room here is in the shape of a young boy that goes to a certain magical school for young children. Harry Potter, is that, is that where we're going today? Oh, it definitely gets around. Harry, Harry <laughs> Potter is always hiding in the closet. He has an invisibility cloak. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I've written a lot about Harry Potter, and mainly because it was maybe the most recent example that Christians remember, even some young Christians Remember when there were calls to boycott the Harry Potter series, there were some genuine concerns and also some plain made up, you know, fake news about the Harry Potter series all mixed in. And I like the series, but I can understand why someone have concerns about it. But mainly I bring it up when I do just as an example of this is the topic. You know, the topic is bigger than Harry Potter. It's bigger than concerns about uh, Twilight or Sparkland vampires from from last decades fictional magic is everywhere. Like I, I remember when I was a kid, I think I'm trying to remember the first time, like I, I saw a story or read a story where it was obvious that a character was doing magic. And I think it was some cartoon show on ABC channel or something where there was some little furry floating creature with a bag full of sparkles. And he would like refuel his magic with the bag full of sparkles. This is like all of the 1980s in one anecdote. I think there was always furry creatures with magic in the 1980s. <laughs> At least that's the first time I can remember it. I mean, most of us probably got it from uh, Disney movies with Tinkerbell flying around or a fairy godmother or something like that. Uh, Zach, like, well, I'm curious, what was the first story you might remember where it was obvious, oh, that character is doing the thing, doing magic? Star Wars was the earliest, sci- well, that, that's a fantasy. I, I would, you know, everyone says it's science fiction. Oh, it's absolutely like uh, space opera. It's defi- definitely yeah. magic. Yeah. In fact, many, many Christians will be okay with Star Wars and not okay with Harry Potter, but they're exactly the same type of genre, at least so far as it, 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 the magic is concerned. You just call yeah, it differently. Force. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and the words will kind of throw you off. Jedi Knight sounds more noble uh, than wizard. You know, because right. you get the word wizard in some Bible translations as something you don't want to do. Yeah. I mean, in terms of fantasy, though, I remember reading The Sword of Shannara when I was in middle school. And that was probably the first series I picked up that was just more pure fantasy. And it was more about like magical objects. There were a couple of people that did magic in the book, but it was very limited, it seemed like. It was more just that it was a magical world. It wasn't until I got into other books that, had more of a, an idea that anyone could do magic, which we'll get into that. Well, it's important to note that when we say, oh, Star Wars also has magic in it, the point is not to say, hey, you already think that Star Wars is okay. That must mean that you should think that all the other stories with magic in them should be okay. The point is to say that fictional magic is everywhere. 
more than we realize and that therefore everything needs to undergo some kind of biblical scrutiny. Uh, let's not lock our deadbolts against a story because it uses the word magic or even the word witch or even the word wizard or witchcraft because there are many other stories that may not use those words but may be even more concerning. Uh, just because they use different words uh, doesn't mean that they are outside of our discernment. Uh, th there was a great discussion on Twitter with the authors of the Expanse series, and uh. this is like pure pure science fiction. Okay, well, okay, uh, there there's some uh, alien kind of stuff in there. I won't get into, but they were asked, okay, how do these spaceships work with the fusion engines? Like, what? How in the world do those? What What do those fusion engines run on? <laughs> and, and the author's reply was, they run on efficiency. There you go. There you, <laughs> there go. you go. Story efficiency. There's a similar anecdote with the creators of Star Trek, where you have to, in terms of building a science fiction world, you have to at least kind of make it believable. You know, there may be no machinery inside uh, that transporter beam control panel, but it still needs to have flashing lights and look like a control panel from the outside. And someone was asking specifically about the transporter. Uh, there's this idea that you cannot break down human beings into an energy stream and then reassemble it because there's too much uncertainty that even if you could do that, one molecule out of place and the whole human being falls apart. That's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So they had to invent a technology to get over that, and they called it the Heisenberg compensators. <laughs> and it is said that someone once asked one of the uh, Star Trek producers, hey, how do the Heisenberg compensators work? Eh? Eh? And the guy replied, they work just fine, thank you. <laughs> uh, what they really work on is magic. It is the bluff of the story. It is all, we are all pretending. I'm sorry, folks, you can dress it up with great acting and special effects, but it's all pretending one way or another. We're all pretending that this magic works and it is magic deep down, whether it's science fiction or fantasy, you can call the magic in the story science. You can call it superpowers or you can call it alien abilities. You can say that Captain America got this serum and it was all science. It's magic, you guys, just as magic as Thor's flying hammer. It's all indistinguishable from magic. I'm studiously avoiding the Arthur C. Clarke quote here, folks. In practice, though, it's all magic, and space, of course, uh, doesn't permit a full exploration of the many different ways that magic can take form in stories. But we can try to focus on what some of the Christian discernment materials don't. You know, when you're reading the movie review and it says, uh, this character has a magic wand, uh, this character has superpowers, and actually, I'm seeing less cautions about those now. Not sure whether or not that's healthy. Just helps to study the genre and know what you need to expect and especially know what magic exactly does Scripture warn about and why does it warn us against this. So let's jump into our first uh, main point here. Scripture warns against real occult practices that result from idolatry. Okay, so this is interesting. We're, we're not just simply talking about magic spells or whatever. Uh, because what scripture really always brings home is this idea of idolatry and everything that flows from that. So why don't we jump into that, Stephen? Yes, indeed. There's lots of scriptures that warn against occult practices, and it uses terms depending on your translation, uh, like wizard or witchcraft, uh, suffer not a witch to live, I think is the famous phrase derived from the King James translation. Our key text here will actually be Deuteronomy 18, which is the main warning in the Old Testament, probably the most cohesive outline for not only what God does not want his people Israel to do, but why. Uh, we're going to read verses 9 through 14 here in just a moment, uh, but it does help to put this in context. It does help to 
not maybe read the whole book of Deuteronomy, but just summarize where the book is, what point in history this is for God's people, and where they're going. What happens before and after Deuteronomy 18 that puts this passage into context? There's a lot more in here than a focus on Israel's pagan neighbors doing pagan things. Now, when we step back, we see that God is focusing on Israel's leadership and worship. Now, if you read uh, Deuteronomy 18, it continues the last chapter's instructions about these crucial themes. In the earlier chapter, chapter 17, it's talking about, uh, here's how you do a trial for individual sin. Uh, here's how the priests and the judges should show discernment. Now, here's some basic stuff in here about at some point when you get a king. And then in uh, chapter 18, God is specifying how his people should support the order of the priests. And that's an important point to make, although it doesn't seem so when I first say it, because what I read here is that the priests are God's special class of spiritual mediators for Israel. They're the ones who enforce all the rules, especially about the sacrifices. They're the ones who are talking to you if you have done something that renders you unclean by Jewish ceremonial law. That's the context for why God is moving to this darker topic, the fake mediators, fake priests, idols. Okay, so Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not imitate the detestable customs of those nations. No one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire, practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens, practice sorcery, cast spells, consult a medium or a spiritist, or inquire of the dead. Everyone who does these acts is detestable to the Lord, and the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts. Zach, have you ever heard this text specifically applied to fictional magic? I'm, I'm curious. I have, but not lately, because I have a lot of good friends and my church is really good. But probably many of our listeners have, even if neither of us have. And I heard someone say, well, you can't read that. You know, magic ain't too great. Uh, remember Deuteronomy 18? Yeah, I, I really haven't. There's a passage uh, way at the end of the Bible I'll, I'll mention later, but I, I haven't really heard this one in the circles I've grown up in. There was a Christian radio host a few years ago uh, who was getting after a certain British boy wizard and his various hijinks, and he had not read the series, which doesn't mean that he was disallowed from criticizing it, uh, but he did repeat a lot of myths about it. Uh, the title character, he said, goes about doing human sacrifices to my memory, which hopefully <laughs> is not an incorrect memory, which is, would be like an incorrect statement about the book. That's, that's not what Harry Potter ever does. He, he does some bad stuff, but never that. Anyway, it's not just about him. The point was the host said, well, you know, Deuteronomy 18, that's a sin. You know, God hates that stuff. Okay. Yes, God hates this stuff that God has mentioned, but we need to know what he's mentioned and why and what the context is. To do that, we need to read this chapter as the original hearers would have read it as best we can with starting with their context, not starting with our context. Uh, what I'm reading here is God is telling them this land is yours but it's a bad neighborhood. Don't copy the neighbors. Next, we would need to apply this truth to us. And in some way, we do relate to these promises in a way, you know, just because Christ has come, that doesn't mean we can suddenly do occult practices. That's not what anyone should be saying. Some neighbors around us also have some pagan practices. And we, like Israel, have some kind of inheritance in the future and some gifts from God now takes a lot of work that we don't have time to do now, and probably your local church pastor needs to be doing that instead of a podcast. But right now we can say that because the New Testament repeats warnings, like you mentioned, Zach, uh, warnings against sorcery, 
And in fact, it says that people who practiced sorcery were counted among Christians. Such were some of you, the Apostle Paul says, after a list of sins. And that includes people who did used to practice sorcery, but now don't anymore. So let's listen to this text. Let's not just write it off. Oh, that's Old Testament stuff. Uh, that the sort of the same stuff like sacrifices and all that has nothing to do with us. Not so. <clears throat> we don't unhitch from the Old Testament. It is still very valuable and, <laughs> and very awesome in its context. This text uh, probably is different from the warnings about not eating uh, shrimp or shellfish or things like that. It surely has some effect on us, uh, particularly when it says, and Zach, you read from the CSB, uh, the, the verses I have here are from the ESV, so it may sound a little bit different. Uh, it says that there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Uh, yeah, I would hope not. <laughs> surely, well, hopefully not. No, we don't kill our children as a burned offering to an idol. Don't practice human sacrifice. That's abominable. Please don't do that. <laughs> and this is one-on-one stuff here, folks. <laughs> you would think so. You know, we could get into something sociopolitical here. It would take us far afield. But right now, yeah, it's bad to kill children, people. It's bad to sacrifice kids to your idols. Now, there's a secondary meaning here, of course. You know, that that may mean that you need to turn off the game and, you know, play with your kids. Like there, there's there's a, you know, very modern application here. Still, just valuing human life and those relationships in your family above the idol that you set up for yourself. You know, idolatry is not good. And you treat Ooh. the image of God with the utmost respect. Life now is you're, sacred. Now you're meddling. Now you're meddling. Oh, oh, I didn't mean to meddle. <laughs> See, I just got here a few months ago. So you've been doing it since, uh, how old is Annalee? Well, yeah. Over a decade now. When I first became a parent, our oldest daughter, this was about 13 years ago, I had this dream, Stephen, where I was in a house uh, on my computer, hard at work, and my daughter wanted to uh, play, but I'm like, no, I'm working. And then all of a sudden there was this fire alarm that was going off in this house. And I had two seconds to get out of the house and I, I could only grab one thing. And so I just immediately picked up my daughter and ran out of the house. Well, that was the right choice. Yeah. And then I, and then I woke up, I'm like, okay, I think I get the meaning. In the <laughs> dream, did you have automatic cloud backup? <laughs> then it was definitely, so. that was definitely the right choice because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> human beings don't have that. Right. <laughs> so fortunately you did not idolize your computer or your work. And hopefully you did not try to do what scripture warns against anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Don't do those things for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. I forgot the quote unquote there. That, I think, also applies specifically to us. All of these practices are false and blasphemous ways to seek the future that is known to God alone. Even if it's for a good purpose, I need to take care of my family. I need to make sure that I have a good harvest next year. Still, you must not try to tell the future. That is God's territory. Divination is an attempt to tell the future. Fortune telling is the same thing. Same for interpreting omens and practicing sorcery and charming and summoning the dead. What would you want to talk with the dead about? What's going to happen? Am I going to be safe? All bad stuff. If you want to know the future, though, that's a fruit of an idolatrous root. You want to control reality on your own terms. You want to manipulate your world. In essence, you want to set yourself up as God, which, of course, is the original sin back in the Garden of Eden. You shall be as God's the devil promised. The chief sin here seems to be that single sin behind divination and fortune telling and control. 
You're trying to steal authority from God. Surely the Bible code is okay. Oh, I remember that one. <laughs> wow. Just a little bit of divination in there, you think? I mean, I, I, it seemed kind of interesting at the time, but that guy just died. Zach, the, oh, the man really? who wrote. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He, he wrote it, and I believe, if I recall rightly, I believe that he seemed to be kind of in on the thing, understanding that it was playing some tricks with the, with the Hebrew numbers and you know, going through the original text as if it was a sort of crossword puzzle to yeah. plug in some math and get uh, some predictions about whether the president of Egypt would be assassinated and on a particular day. Yeah, I mean, that, that is fortune-telling. I wouldn't put that in the category of Bible prophecy. That's not something the original writers would have ever thought was going on in their own text. When I was in middle school, high school, I was, I was really into this stuff. Uh, I was really into Nostradamus, for example. And then uh, I think it was around the same time the Bible code came out. I'm like, cool. You know, hey, look, even the Bible supports, uh, you know, there's, you can find this in, in the Bible too. And I just thought, oh, it's, it, it was kind of syncretism for me. It's like, oh yeah, anyone can know the future if you know the right formula to look for. I just remembered that previous guest, Randall Ingermanson, uh, who lately has been writing biblical fiction, Crown of Thorns series about the early life of Jesus Christ and has previously written some hard science fiction. His first book, I believe, was a nonfiction takedown of some of the Bible code nonsense. And I got it, and I read it, and it was fun, and yet he, he got into the math. Uh, Randy Ingermanson has taught physics before, so he knows his stuff when it comes to math and English. And it was pretty persuasive, and I think it, for me, it finished off uh, any of the temptations to think that, oh, maybe the Bible code is some uh, secret... <laughs> hidden dimension of scripture now revealed in these end times. Um, and fortunately, I don't see any of those types of books around anymore. And I must say with the greatest possible grace, uh, good riddance. Well, you know, I, th I think it really helps to think about why we turn to these things. My daughter and I were recently talking about stress, you know, and generally you feel stress about something in the present stress. That's about the past generally we call that depression, stress about the future, that's anxiety. You know, so we all have this experience with stress, whether it's past, present, or future. And it's, it's the anxiety about the future, which really drives this need to know what is going to happen and how can I be safe and how can I navigate this the right way, whether it's, you know, what stocks do I invest in? What job do I take? Anything that involves your prosperity or well-being it's just natural to want to know what do I need to do in the future to avoid catastrophe. And so I, I think when you, when you recognize that, then you can see, okay, I, I'm putting my trust in something to feel better about the future. So uh, is the thing I'm trusting going to actually hold me up? At Annalise Youth Group, they said, you know, ev everyone has a crutch. People say, oh, well, religion is a crutch. And it's like, true, but everything, something is a crutch. It's just a matter of if your crutch will hold up. And so I, I thought that was a good way of thinking about getting to the heart issue of why people go to these things. Exactly. And even if you don't do sorcery or any of these blasphemous means to try to predict the future, uh, we're all tempted toward this idolatry. It was the original sin, and we're all plagued with it now, the impulse to try to be like God, to be in control. We suffer anxiety, depression, and just normal worry about the future. And as a result, uh, we 
fail to trust in God and instead want to take God's authority from him, including the ability to know the future or to guarantee safety. Uh, I have to say, while we were working on the pop culture parent, you know, we wanted to be very kind and sensitive to future readers who struggled with just these very things. And yet at the same time, we wanted to challenge others and ourselves. Look, there is no magic formula. You cannot lock your kids up from popular culture or teach your kids to engage popular culture and thereby guarantee that they're going to remain Christians, that they're going to continue to love Jesus more than they want to love idolatry. God alone is the one who can guarantee that if he chooses, we have to let him be on the throne and put ourselves in our rightful place in front of the throne. God also is the one who alone can guarantee a particular destiny. If he wants to tell us, he will. But if he doesn't, then that is his territory. The secret things belong to God. The things revealed, we get to seek out, we get to explore, but he's going to keep some things to himself. He's going to keep that power to himself. We don't get it. And that's why God is warning about Israel not following after the neighbors who crave this kind of power and assurance uh, that is only available through God and the things that he's revealed. The uh, author Deuteronomy goes on and he says, quote, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them, the pagan neighbors, out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess. Listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. End quote. God is making a little, uh, little promise here. He actually, oddly enough, does a little prophecy here, Zach. I think I, I just saw that for the first time. The Lord your God is driving them out before you. He's like, this is already in progress and it's going to happen because they were doing these things. For the original readers, they hear, oh, we're going to be used by God to punish these chronic offenders. We don't know their stories. We don't know what other means God tried to get them to stop. That's not part of what God has chosen to reveal to us either. And for us, of course, the church doesn't get to do this like Israel did. We shouldn't want to. Jesus has, uh, has fulfilled the law that we don't spread uh, Christianity by driving out the pagan neighbors. We have to dwell among them for now. The wheat among the tares, as Jesus later said in a parable. But we are waiting for God to do this great sorting, uh, this future judgment between them. That is something that God has revealed in actual prophecy. God is driving out evil in the world now, but his method is slower. His method is more careful, and yet it is powerful. He is driving out evil, but also redeeming many who used to serve evil through the power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. In the meantime, we have got to expect pagans to pagan. The pagans are going to do pagan things, which was a good thing that that radio host uh, mentioned earlier. He used to say that, oh, no, the pagans are acting like pagans again. This is completely predictable, we could say. That is something that we know from Scripture. We can predict that in the future. But in the meantime, as Christians, we also need to make sure to identify and confront carefully because it is sensitive issues and there are anxieties and legitimate fears mixed up in there. But if someone is trying to commit some kind of white magic, some kind of divination, whether it's through a Bible code or some secret formula that's supposedly from the Bible, we have to be very careful but firm about confronting those things among ourselves in the church and especially in our own hearts. So how else do you think Christians can apply this Old Testament passage today? You know, we said we, we don't need to unhitch from the Old Testament. It, it still applies to our life and it's a... Uh, you know, a little more complicated way, but 
where else do you see this at play right now? Well, we started doing it earlier. Uh, even the reference to valuing life, the lives of your children, over the idols. You do not sacrifice your children in the fire to your idols, but that also would mean that uh, any of the idols that we have now, like success or getting that big promotion or any of those things, like we, we don't do those things at the expense of our loved ones. We don't sacrifice their lives even in little ways, even if we wouldn't dare to think about you know, actually abandoning them somewhere or killing them or something. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Tim Keller talks about the four basic idols. It's uh, power, control, comfort. What's the fourth one? I'll have, to, I'll have to look that up. Oh, I don't remember myself. But yeah, our uh, I, I feel bad now because our pastors have talked about this. But you know, I, I think the control idol is the big one that comes here. Is that you want to control the world around you or power? You want to have power to do whatever it is you want to do. You want to have freedom. But then it, a lot of this plays into comfort. You don't want to experience uncertainty. You don't want to experience hardship or suffering and you know, that's where you really need a good theology of suffering and persecution because Jesus, that's one thing he definitely promised us in this world, you will have trouble. <laughs> and so I think it, it helps to have a full theology of the things that we will expect so that we don't, we're not tempted to turn to things that can make us have that sense of security. Um, when I was a young Christian and, and still coming out of a lot of the things I believed, I thought, well, you know, horoscopes and, uh, uh, fortune cookies, you know, maybe that is, maybe that's God's way of telling me something in a, in a particular moment. You know, maybe I can trust his sovereignty by the fact that I opened this particular fortune cookie. And so it was kind of a, uh, it's like a serendipity kind of belief of like, oh, maybe God put this fortune cookie here for such a time as this. <laughs> and, you know, you can almost like spiritualize the kinds of things that the world offers us and try to baptize it, if you will. But uh, I think it, it really just dilutes the faith that we can have in Christ and, and in his word. I think we all have that impulse in us, though. I, I, I smile a little bit about the fortune cookie thing. But hey, who among us has not opened the fortune cookie and we all laugh? And yet we also secretly deep down wish it were true. I mean, it's like mm -hmm. wishing that Santa Claus were true or wishing that if we practiced a particular method of efficiency or maybe even prayer, then we get that parking space right up front, just like we really, really need because we're in a hurry. And it's illogical. I mean, I think a lot of us knew already what uh, Sir Ben Kingsley announced uh, playing the fake Mandarin in Iron Man 3. Did you know that fortune cookies are an American invention? I think we knew that already. Like, it's not anything ancient Chinese. It's just somebody deciding to make it up. And a lot of this stuff gets made up. But because we are creatures of imagination, we kind of wish it were true. And man, it sure would be nice if there just was a, if there was a formula where we could just guarantee our comfort or safety in, in little ways. And I think that that basic instinct is behind a lot of Christians who, even in the name of avoiding paganism or avoiding witchcraft, will come up with these little methods, these little formulas, uh, these little uh, ideas that will build up a shield of protection and keep out the evil. Zach, I've even read like prayer books, like spiritual warfare manuals, where the guy says that, you know, he'll go into a hotel room and he'll just step around it and he'll pray that any evil influence will be cleansed from the hotel room. Mm. And I'm like, okay, I don't know if this guy has ever read a, a, a vampire novel, but that is how you 
keep vampires out of the place. You know, you're putting garlic flowers at the windowsill and things like that. Like that's there's nothing in the scripture about cleansing particular places, but it'd be nice. But we just we just don't get it there. And if we give those little imaginations their uh if we give give them the rain, uh, then they'll run away with us into very unbiblical directions that can actually damage our souls just as much, if not more, uh, than the evil thing we're trying to avoid. Okay, I found the fourth root idol. It's approval. Ah, so the desire success. to be accepted, mm-hmm. yeah, or like it's more like social. You know, like to to be you want to be desired by others, accepted by others. You want to be popular. Of course, there's a whole song about that, but. You know, Stephen, I think about this a lot in Christian circles that, oh, well, okay, let me go back for a second. I think it really helps to think about what it is that we're sacrificing. You know, it's interesting that that passage in Deuteronomy 18 starts off with, don't sacrifice your children. It's like, who in the world would ever think that? But it's like you said, we, we make sacrifices all the time in pursuit of the idols of our heart. So what do we usually sacrifice for the idol of approval? We sacrifice others. We sacrifice people we don't like anymore that are unpopular. And, you know, this can happen one of two ways. You could sacrifice the church back home. I'll just make it simple. You know, whether that is a really legalistic church or maybe a very progressive church that you you just want to say, oh, I'm not one of those Christians. Oh, I'm mind this kind blown. of Christian. Wow. <laughs> no, you just, wow. They just blew up my, but no, you just helped my paradigm there. Oh, please continue. I'm sorry. I did not mean to interrupt. That's that's so true. It's about sacrifice. Wow. That's true. So I was taught as a young Christian, how to share your testimony and it's A, B, C, and no D. So A, admit you're a sinner. B, believe in Christ. C, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And then no D, so no denomination. (laughs) Oh, well, fair enough. Okay. Don't make it about Hey, I used to be in this church and now I'm in this church. You know, that's just like, it just kind of feeds into the whole consumerism uh, mentality that we, it's creeps in so easily. But yeah, I, I think that's so important that we don't just try to seek approval by sacrificing someone else. Amen. Especially because Christians, this side of the New Testament, know that that sacrifice has already been made. Jesus is the only sacrifice that we need. You don't sacrifice your own kinfolk. You don't even need to sacrifice animals anymore. And you certainly don't need to sacrifice good things, unless, of course, they tempt you to sin. And we'll get to that in our next part. But I love this text, everyone. Not just because, oh, it's about magic and paganism, which is always an interesting topic, but in studying this text several times now, because it's it's something that anyone who loves fantasy needs to wrestle with, it actually has become one of my favorite parts of the Bible, mainly because it is so good at setting up one of the earliest and most awesome prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. And I think if we talk about, if we just throw away Deuteronomy 8, oh yeah, that's the thing that's, uh, that says we can't, uh, we can't do magic. No, 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 no. Keep going. Right after this verse 14 there, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Don't stop. Instead, you need to behold the final prophet forecast. God speaking through Moses keeps going here. We don't just conclude with, oh, well, I guess we can't know the future. Oh, well, God's just going to keep us in the dark. Uh, Oh, well, God is not going to provide any guarantee of ultimate security or safety or assurance about his goodness and the fact that he has control of the future. 
No, God is still talking about mediators, idols, fake prophecies, the divination, uh, the spirits we try to reach. Those are the fake ones. They're not going to give us the accurate future in the way that God wants to deliver it. If he does, those are fake. But Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 says, quote, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that is Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, end quote. And it keeps going. I wish we could read it all now, but suffice it to say, for the original hearers, God is saying, yeah, I will reveal the future in my own way, including the prophets. But best of all, you need to watch for what the Bible here calls the final prophet. This is the exclusive way that God is going to be giving any further revelation to his Old Testament people. And I really would like to talk about Jesus and the prophet qualifications and all that, but we got to move on. But the point is, this passage isn't just about a warning against occult evils. Don't try to know the future. Don't try to get safety. God being sensitive. Oh, even that Old Testament version of God, right? He's saying, I think implicitly, and I know that's a big struggle for you guys, but idols are not going to meet that need anyway. It's about Jesus. It's about my final prophet. It is to him you will listen. He's going to lead you in the right way. Rely on him. Trust in him for your hope. Okay, so not to get nitpicky on you, but I noticed that this in this entire passage, we never see the word magic. I mean, we see sorcery, but we, we don't really... Uh, you know, is is this getting to the the question of what where you know where are the magic spells that you know supposedly people were learning here? Yeah, I don't see them here. Now, I wouldn't. I mean, there's other texts that use the word magic. They can you can you can translate it differently. So different translation. Okay. Yes, there are. You know, in in the New Testament, you know, there's different words. I believe one is a pharmakeia, you know, which is kind of the root word of pharmacy. So it's more like this idea of you know the potions master. Yeah, magic isn't here, but or the word isn't here, but I think the idea is, but it's a particular kind of magic. It's the kind that wants to foretell the future or control your world rooted in the motive of idolatry. But there's a lot of stuff that isn't in this text and that I don't think you'll find warned against in the rest of scripture. God is not saying, for example, anything about Satan here. Go back and check. Satan is real. He's a threat. And the occult is bound to be one of the worst tricks he's ever pulled on people. And he's still at it. But Satan and demons don't appear here. God doesn't talk about whether these strategies work. Notwithstanding that weird account of uh, Samuel appearing uh, after yeah. death to Saul, the witch of Endor. Uh, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, yeah we, we, don't, we don't actually read here that, no, don't go talk to spirits or a demon's going to possess you. Like, maybe that's true. But he doesn't even talk about whether these strategies will summon Satan or demons or give them a foothold in your life or any of that. Like none of that is here. It may be true. And some of y'all listening may have experienced something like that in your life. It's just important to make sure that scripture is not saying when scripture is not saying the things that we think it's saying here, at least in this text, God is not interested in these topics. What he's interested in is a single motive for people their holiness in worship for God's sake. And in verses 13 through 14, he says again, quote, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. The Lord your God has not allowed you to do this, end quote, by this meaning any of these occult divination, idolatrous practices. He wants them to reject the false assurance via divination and occult evils. He alone is going to send the final prophet and the perfect king and perfect priest 
to whom we must exclusively listen. What's also not here, Zach, anything about reading about other people doing actual sins. I think when, uh, you know, we'll get more into this in the second part of this uh, little series on the podcast about application, but I do note here that God is in very basic terms, describing what these people do. And if this were, you know, if, if he had more space <laughs> and if Moses's message had not run on already long, uh, he may have expanded on what exactly he's talking about here. And it would have been okay and proper for godly people to hear specifics about what they're not supposed to do. If you saw someone doing that right in front of you with evil intent, that doesn't mean that you yourself are guilty of the same sin. How much less than I would say, is it a sin? It, I don't think it is a sin automatically for you to read a book in some, in which a character is doing something called magic. If you personally are not trying to practice divination or sin any more than usual or practice idolatry. In theory, you could read that book about a fictional magic practice or even a real sinful divination attempt, and you're not automatically guilty of that same sin. And we'll pick that up, uh, not only in this discussion, but also in that next part. Yeah, the analogy I think of is, are you reading the newspaper or are you reading an instruction manual? Mm. That, that entirely changes. Uh, what, but again, it's the intent and it's it's what you're going there for. I personally could read, although I don't want to because I don't care. And there is an effect on, I, people would say an effect on your spirit. You know, it does hurt sometimes to read accounts of evil, even for the purpose of shining light on it, whether it's fictional or nonfiction, it, it does have an effect on you, but that's not necessarily means that you're guilty of sin just because you are grieved by witnessing uh, this act of depravity being portrayed. I, however, could read, like I could go to the new age section in a bookstore and probably read one of those books cover to cover and personally not be tempted to sin any more than usual. There is other stuff that I should not be reading uh, that would definitely tempt me to sin more than usual, but that stuff I'm probably good with. But your mileage may vary. Everyone has different weaknesses, vulnerabilities. We have to look out for each other in the church. So, Stephen, it's, I like that we've studied Deuteronomy 18 in a really deep way. You know, I feel like this is kind of a, uh, you have heard it said, do not practice sorcery. But I tell you, do not sacrifice anything to any idol. <laughs> That's kind of Ooh. the approach you've taken here. Yeah, it's it's actually more widespread than we think. Like Christians might shrink it into this really narrow command about uh, not playing like you're a Jedi or not reading a Harry Potter book. Like, well, maybe you shouldn't play Jedi. Maybe you shouldn't read a Harry Potter, but it is about your motive. But you also ought not go over here and and write a book saying, you know, round up all those toy lightsabers and Harry Potter books, you know, and burn them in the backyard, you know, purge the evil from among you. Like, well, that actually probably doesn't happen as often as we might think or as much as skeptics of Christianity might claim. But if someone tried that, I think that would actually get a little bit closer to the kind of magic practice that we're not supposed to do. Well, I, I think it's just a very simple explanation. And this is not to judge anyone's particular motive, but I, I think it's just natural and it's, it's easier to want to deal with the external symbols of evil and sin and idolatry than it is to deal with the internal symbols because it's just, you know, it's just, it's very easy to say, get rid of the lucky rabbit's foot you have or the dream catcher or the horoscope or the, uh, <laughs> or the fortune cookie. 
versus, hey, stop sacrificing this for that. You know, stop feeding the idols of your heart. Stop feeding the idol of comfort. Mm. You know, what was the statistic recently about, um, is it like 40% of Americans are overweight? And, and of them, it's like 60% are obese. Like they've been talking about that a lot with COVID, that obesity is a comorbidity, you know, and okay, well, there's a lot we could talk about with that, but let's just be honest. We have a lot of comfort food in America. You know, we, we have an entire menu of comfort food and boy, am I ever tempted for that all the time. But, uh, you know, that is a lot harder to deal with. That, that is a much, mm, that's a much stronger idol than the idol of, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi or something or of the force. Exactly. And it could be for someone like that, that they do need to put away certain kinds of foods. Doesn't mean the foods are evil, but their motive and their, and their use of them is evil. And it could also mean, I mean, you know, we, we ought not be such enlightened, you know, young, hip, cool Christians, you know, the good comp Christian who's better than that legalist at the church back home. It could mean that you do need to throw out your fantasy novel, like like Mike, Mike Duran, we talked about last week. It kind of helped inspire this discussion here. Uh, he had to go through and get rid of some stuff. And that was good because he had been into the occult for those idolatrous ends. And he knew once uh, gospel got a hold of him, I mean, it was a slow process as he describes it, but he knew he had to get rid of some of those symbols and all that. Just like a young Christian in the church at Corinth would need to avoid meat sacrificed to idols. It was for him tainted maybe there was no such entity behind the idol you know maybe the dream catcher doesn't actually have a demon haunting it in the spiritual dimension doesn't matter the effect on your heart is just as bad as if it did so it needs to go out in the trash well this has been a great discussion Stephen. i'm really looking forward to part two when we dive into more of what this looks like when we read fiction and how that can affect us and whether we should keep those books or get rid of them or have some other approach because this is a big question people ask but i think this is really good to cover the scriptural background of this and really dive into what is the heart issue at work and not just the simple answer about books because there's never a simple answer with this kind of stuff but now let's go to our fantastic fans so we have a comment here from a Stephen l rice why don't you give that to us Stephen? Uh, he says quotes i would like burnett i guess that's me or any other superhero fan to respond to, and he gives a YouTube video link, uh, is Superman still relevant today? The YouTuber who produced it isn't a Christian, but his insight into the modern trend to degrade heroes and exalt villains is amazing. End quote. Don't have time to get into that a whole lot now. I definitely have opinions about Superman and how he's portrayed, and particularly gatekeeper fans who want to make Superman or other heroes a uh, little more than sentimental figureheads for abstract virtue that isn't actually challenged by a uh, version of the real world around us that just happens to have superheroes and alien gods and things. But for now, uh, to quote another hero from another universe, I'll put it on the list. As uh, Captain America, when he's a little bit busy and is catching up on popular culture, uh, I'll bookmark that YouTube video. And I think in a future podcast, Zach, uh, we're going to talk about superheroes again. Just need to kind of find a fresh angle on it because Christians like superheroes a lot. So we say a lot about it and we want to reinforce that and honor that, but also provide something new. We'll just be putting that together and see when we can get to that episode topic. Yeah, I'm fascinated. In, uh, I've become a lot more fascinated in recent years with villains and not because I think we should exalt them, 
but because I think by studying them, we learn a lot more about human nature. Of course, we learn about studying heroes. We learn a lot, but I've been really finding that the movies with well-written villains get my attention a lot more. And I, I wrote an article article about this for Spec Faith. It's why the villains we love just want their freedom. And it goes into the fact that, you know, we can really sympathize with villains. And what does that say about us as humans? What does that say about our our nature? And uh, yeah, Stephen, I, I'm going to probably write some more articles about this simply because of what it reveals, uh, not because I think that, oh, heroes are overrated. And I, I think this uh, this person, uh, Stephen Rice, is is correct that there is that attitude among our culture that heroism is overrated. Uh, the superheroes are just, you know, that's in the past. That's, that's not relevant anymore. And it's, there's a spirit of cynicism, I think, that's taken over a lot of movies and stories. And that, yeah, I'm not really interested in that either. So th- this is going to be a good discussion, I think, to continue having. Oh, definitely. And of course, Noble Dark can be confused for cynicism. And folks, yeah. especially who aren't, aren't, aren't as used to it or maybe just aren't there in their lives or their personal struggles at the time, uh, they might see dark tones in a movie uh, or a struggling hero, even a good virtuous hero who struggles, who is plagued with doubts and such. You may see that, oh, this is a noble dark story. You're just trying to deconstruct the genre. You're trying to say that no one's truly heroic. Not exactly so. In real life, a true hero can struggle just like that. And in real life, our world is actually pretty dark. But if you can show the nobility shining bright against that darker backdrop, sometimes it can shine all the brighter in our perception. So for you, our listener, again, we would love to hear your take on this topic about fictional magic and Deuteronomy 18, wherever this kind of hits you. We'd love to know your story, your thoughts about this. Obviously, there's a, it's a big topic for discussion. So join the discussion. You can email us at podcast at lorehaven.com. Or comment anywhere you see Lorehaven on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter. I guess we are on Instagram, but we're not as active there. You can also just go to lorehaven.com and find this episode and comment there. I'm actually trying to be a little bit more active on Instagram, not just because I got my pretty bookshelves up and can actually set up some very Instagrammable a geeky type displays with not just books, but also collectibles. And uh, I would particularly want to hear from listeners before we record our next episode about this topic. Uh, any of your anecdotes or particularly challenging situations, uh, we may, if we get the note early enough uh, this week, uh, following the, uh, the 10th of October is when we're recording this today, do get that in and we will see if we can include that in that uh, part two of this series about fictional magic. Next on Fantastical Truth, now that we have explored Deuteronomy 18 as best we can uh, with God's most famous warning against occult practices, this, of course, raises a lot of questions, particularly for Christians who enjoy fantasy. For example, what if people claim that fictional magic does make them sin or stumble? Also, even if we are not ourselves tempted by fantasy magic, How do we care and show the love of Christ in the gospel for people who do suffer those temptations? It just gets more complicated here in the deep magic end as we keep on seeking and finding fantastical truth.